Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 258, recorded July 21st, 2010. Five years of vulnerabilities. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Improve your conference calls and keep everyone on the same page when you share your screen with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all your security needs with us right now. The king, our guru of security, Steve Gibson from GRC.com, waving happily. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Steve is uh, the man who discovered spyware, coined the term spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware program. He's written a number of great free security utilities. And over the last five years has really been educating us on uh, security and privacy issues. From GRC.com, Steve Gibson. Hello. Leo, great to be with you again as always. Are we, uh, are we in our fifth year now? Not quite. Well, we're... Wrapping up our fifth year, we're at, at two, since we have 52 weeks a year, and we've never missed an episode. Wow. That would, our, the end of our fifth year would be episode 260. I mean, we're, we're beginning our sixth year in three episodes. Exactly. Yes. And what's coincidental is that we started the podcast at the same time that Secunia the Danish security firm that we've talked about a couple times, actually several times, many times even, uh, they have that neat free utility PSI, which we have recommended to our listeners, which uh, is free to use and download. It it gathers information about a user's um, installed software programs and versions and, uh, and alerts people to their use of software, which is gone unsupported and or has known vulnerabilities in it well they started exactly five years ago and as a consequence just this last week produced a report of what they have found during the five years they've been counting vulnerabilities which happens to be the same five years we've been doing the podcast so we're going to wrap up a very long start of the podcast covering what's happened this week and boy a lot has happened this week um by talking about what uh the secunia analysis of vulnerabilities over the last five years have been and unfortunately why it's not good news oh dear yeah, we won't be done. We won't be running out of material here anytime soon. Although yeah. anybody who listens to this show knows that yeah, <laughs> that's it's obviously been pretty the clear case. for a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the the bad guys aren't winning, but they're certainly uh, not not losing either. So, top of the news, the biggest, and and the whole security community is going bananas over this. A really bad new Windows zero day vulnerability. Um, it's. It turns out this has it's one of those that's always been in Windows, 
that no one ever found oh. before. I hate so, that when that happens because then you figure, gosh, how long? I mean, this, we've been vulnerable from day one. Well, we've in this case at least ten years wow. because Windows two thousand has it. NT probably does. It turns out there's a subtle error in the way the Windows shell, which is you know the desktop uh, system that runs on top of the sort of the kernel. So the Windows shell, which which displays icons and our start bars and and all that stuff, there's a mistake in the way. It parses the, that is, it displays and uh, the icons of .lnk, that is to say, link files, which are, so, which are commonly known as shortcuts. So Windows shortcut files. What was found about two weeks ago by a researcher in Belarus was a, in the wild, this was being used to attempt to take over the um, the control systems for like electric power utilities that there oh, there's no I mean yes. this is more than just hacking uh, passwords here well yeah so so the particular target where uh, the particular target was Siemens SCADA systems which oh. are used for like you know major process control industrial control nuclear reactor control, electrical power generation stuff. Turns out that these Siemens systems have a hard-coded password, which was built into the malware that, th that this vulnerability was being used to install. What it was installing was a, a rootkit, which installed two different .sys drivers, one to hide itself, thus it's a rootkit, and the second to to attempt to exploit what was known about the fixed password of these Siemens SCADA systems. So, um, what's several things are interesting. First, these sys files, one of the things that Microsoft did to increase the security of Windows, you'll remember with Vista, was you had to have signed drivers. So, a lot of people bitched and moaned about that because it was like, oh, it's going to be a pain to have, you know, to, to have to have signed drivers. But that was something that Microsoft said that's going to enhance our security. So you would think that nothing, that no malware could install kernel level system drivers. One is actually a filter driver, which filters what the file system is showing in order to filter out the display of these link files. Um, they were signed with the digital certificate from Realtek. Wow. So that so that immediately raised a warning flag. What that means is that Realtek's Real private key with which it signs its you know valid good uh, benign drivers somehow escaped its control so that a bad guys got a hold of that. Well, it turns out that since this has happened, well, the, the immediate reaction on from the, from Microsoft and actually VeriSign, who was the signer of Realtek's certificate, and with Realtek's understanding and acknowledgement, because you know they were culpable in this too, was that certificate was revoked. So it was added to the so-called CRL, the Certificate Revocation List, so that Windows would no longer honor. Drivers signed with this known escaped into the wild 
certificate. Well, it turns out that just recently someone spotted the same exploit signed with somebody else's credentials, a company called J Micron Technology Group. And then um, a sharp-eyed researcher, Pierre-Marc Bureau of ESET, he noted that both J Micron and Realtek share the same science park in the Sinchu, uh, it's the Sinchu Science Park in Taiwan. Both companies whose whose private keys have been used to sign these Trojans that are carried by this exploit, like physically are in the same location or nearby. So that's, you know, an amazing observation. It's like, okay, well, that, I'm not sure what that tells us, but it's, it's hard to imagine that that's a coincidence. So, okay, so what we have is a, a zero-day vulnerability found in the wild. The problem now is that, that everything I've described about what this is being used for is just one tip of the iceberg. I mean, this just happens to be how this particular exploit this vulnerability in windows was first seen everybody knows about it now it's been dissected proof of concepts have been created um our friend hd moore uh of metasploit fame has already updated metasploit so it's able to it's able to demonstrate proof of concept so all the bad guys now know how to do this and what the this is is what's so troubling because Microsoft's security report, they've acknowledged this a few days ago. They updated it just yesterday, late yesterday, acknowledging that it turns out that not only will just the... Okay, so I I, I skipped a part. (laughs) This is just amazing. It's been propagating with USB thumb drives because, um, because it copies itself... To any when it's on a system, it copies itself to any thumb drives, and you can't see them on the thumb drive because the rootkit that's a, that it is installed as part of itself. So it it moves <laughs> a set of files onto the thumb drive, um, which include these .lnk files and the two device drivers and so forth, and you can't see them. You then take the thumb drive and stick it into another system. Right. Even if it's got auto run disabled, even if they've done everything we've everyone knows for safety you need to do, it doesn't matter. The act of viewing the contents of the directory, certainly if you if you've got auto run enabled and it pops up the little window saying, "Would you like to browse these files?" which is what so many people do. You know, the, the, the point is, when you stick a thumb drive in a computer, you're typically going to look at the files on it. That's, you know, you're, you're going to bring it up in Explorer, in Windows Explorer, in order to see what's there, you know, drag something out of there, drop something in, whatever. The act of displaying the, the icon of the link files executes the malicious code in that new machine. It, it, it they, it's regarded as not requiring any specific user action. So in this particular case, it's being considered a worm. 
And something like 9,000 instances of this a day is, is now being seen in the wild. The point is that everyone who recognizes how pervasive this can be is expecting this to be a big problem. Then Microsoft, in their most recent update, acknowledged something that H.D. Moore was first quoted as saying. He has apparently figured out how to get <laughs> how to get fave icons to do this. Uh, so, so websites they, they, would do it then. Yes, and so Microsoft has acknowledged that not only displaying these link these link file icons in Windows Explorer, but now. In Office documents, any Office documents are also vulnerable, including Outlook, which is to say email. So so receiving malicious email containing one of these can, can compromise your system. And they also acknowledge websites can do it. You can now have a malicious website that will display, that will, that will, that will leverage this through through the, the 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 defect in the shell, and I'm not sure if it's all browsers. Um, certainly, IE because Microsoft has has acknowledged that. Um, depending upon where the display code is, um, I would imagine this may be cross-browser vulnerable. Also, we'll know more certainly a week from now. The problem is the that there isn't anything clearly. There's no real good solution for this. Microsoft has posted a fix-it, which makes some changes to the registry and also shows what manual changes can be made. The problem is that the the fix that is required until we actually get the, the problem repaired is that all of your link, all of your shortcuts stop being displayed and you get sort of the generic white rectangle. Oh, that, we've seen this before. In, yes, in, um, oh. in, in, instead of in, in, instead of the the normal link that that you're expected to see, and many many of the icons that people are familiar with are actually shortcuts that they're right. not really aware of. Right. So they don't always have that little curly arrow down in the in the lower left hand corner, which is what you get when you have like a manual shortcut created to to a file somewhere. There, are, it turns out that Windows uses these pervasively to sort of glue things together so so if people do this and then reboot the system as is necessary suddenly you've got your your, like windows and control panel and all kinds of things are covered with these white rectangles um and now it's not even clear that that solves the problem so so essentially everyone's holding their breath um our friend um uh dieter uh, has come up with uh, Dieter Stevens has a, an interesting tool that that he had created. Call he calls it A R I A D stands for Auto Run Inf Access Denied. This is a a filter driver that he's installed that sort of globally prevents Auto Run .inf files from from being able to to be used as as a to gain a foothold into your system. And and um, uh, so he talks about this as a means of, of mitigating the problem. Now, the other annoyance is that this has existed from the beginning of Windows, as far as anyone knows. 
Uh, in fact, I even read something that referred to it as like the Windows Metafile problem, which, of course, was one of our early topics at the beginning of this podcast five years ago, which existed back in NT. Um, this very likely does, too. Microsoft takes no responsibility for that, even in their in, in, in their summaries of the affected platforms. It's all versions of Windows which are supported by their current security policy, meaning as of a couple weeks ago, no longer XP Service Pack 2, no longer XP, no longer any Windows 2000. So although those are all vulnerable, apparently they are always going to be. So we're beginning to see a problem with, with Microsoft's understandable need to, at some point, stop back-supporting old operating systems. The problem is that many of these older operating systems are still in active use today for, for reasons of their, their hardware limitations. They can't be updated uh, in many cases. They're just not powerful enough, fast enough to run Windows 7 or Vista. Um, I have, you remember my little libretto, um, the, my little sub notebook libretto? Yeah, I tried, yeah. I tried, to, I brought it up to, to Vancouver, Toronto a couple of times. Yeah. Just like last week, I, I was dusting it off because I wanted to experiment using it as the machine to run um, Windows version of Kindle with a big um, display in front of me when I'm on my stair climber. And and it was way behind in security patches. Uh -huh. and the first yeah. thing it, it, it did was it said, oh, you need Service Pack 3. I installed it. It broke it. Oh, dear. Service Pack 3 can't run on that. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, I've tried this a few times. <sighs> That's and I keep frustrating. And then my own main machine is, is still back on Service Pack 2 because I'm, I'm, it, it doesn't work if I install Service Pack 3. And, of course, we've heard reports about that from you know all along, and apparently that's still the case. So all of those machines and all of the Windows 2000 machines and they're, they're still around are never going to get this fixed. And this is a big problem. It can, so it can, it can get you through the Internet, through opening documents, through Internet Explorer at least, maybe other browsers, from surfing to malicious websites, from displaying fave icons when you go to websites that are malicious, it turns out also through the WebDAV interface and Microsoft also acknowledges now through file shares. So this is, I mean, this is a brand new big problem. No one knows when Microsoft is going to get it fixed. Microsoft, I mean, people are speculating that, that this is bad enough. They'll do an out of, they'll, they'll do an out, out of cycle patch. Um, just push it out because they have to, um, uh, you know, who knows? I thought but they did. There, there it isn't. Says, uh, responding to an avalanche of criticism about the latest zero day, Microsoft has posted. Oh, that quick and dirty patch is what they put out. Right. The, got exactly. It, got the, it. The fix it is the only thing that they've got. Um, so and, they need to fix. They really need to fix these libraries. Oh, they and they absolutely know. That, I mean, they, I'm sure they're not happy about this. And and what I expect to be reporting a week from now and probably two weeks from now is. What has happened with this exploit over the course of the next week or two? Because it's expected that the bad guys are going to jump on it fast oh, and, boy. you know, do as much damage, unfortunately, in, in whatever time 
they're given before this gets fixed. And we know that lots of Windows systems will never be fixed. Uh, It'll like just that Scotta happen. stuff that has the hardwired yes. password. Yes. Shh, what a bad yes. idea. Microsoft's security advisory says... Under the, the topic, how could an attacker exploit the vulnerability? Quote, an attacker could present a removable drive to the user with a malicious shortcut file and an associated malicious binary. When the user opens this drive in Windows Explorer or any other application that parses the icon of the shortcut, which is to say that displays icons, <sighs> right. the malicious binary will execute code of the attacker's choice on the victim system. This is Microsoft saying this. Wow. Further, an attacker could also set up a malicious website or a remote network share and place the malicious components on this remote location. When the user browses the website using a web browser such as Internet Explorer or a file manager such as Windows Explorer, that is to say in the, in the case of a network share, Windows will attempt to load the icon of the shortcut file, and the malicious binary will be invoked. In addition, an attacker could embed an exploit in a document that supports embedded shortcuts or a hosted browser control, such as, but not limited to, Microsoft Office documents, end quote. It's kind of an infinite number of vectors, it sounds it, like. That's why there's such a concern here, yeah. is that this is just, I mean, it is a a malicious hacker's dream come true to find something like this. And, you know, the best thing Microsoft can do is as qu is, is quickly as they can get this fixed across all of their OSs. The fact that it's, it's ubiquitous means this is code that they've, that this, you know, originally written for NT that never got changed. That, you know, it, it just, it's been there. It's like, hey, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Well, turns out it always was broken. Oy. So now they have to fix it on all of their, on all their platforms. And, oh, uh, it, and it is troubling now that we've got as many older machines as we're going to have that are never going to get patched, that are, that are going to have outstanding serious vulnerabilities like this. I mean, th uh, this is this begins to be a real problem. The fact that big problems like this are are coming up in really old Microsoft operating systems that Microsoft will no longer fix. It will no longer patch, and it's not clear that even, for example, uh, Dieter Stevens' um, filter uh, tool. What I'm hoping is, well, I was going to say, it's not clear that even it will will be able to deal with other than the the um uh the dot link execution exploit um what what i'm hoping is that soon we'll end up with some third party gizmo of some sort uh, you know i uh, i'd write one if if <laughs> i guess if i had the time i'd rather not cuz i hope microsoft will fix this soon um uh, but some sort of a third party uh add-on that blocks this pervasively maybe once we know a little bit more about it i mean this is just all breaking right now as we know a little bit more about it it may be possible to come up with a blanket solution that can be applied to these versions of windows that are never going to get fixed wow yeah that's really scary Not is it, uh, it, 
I, I guess it's pointless to moralize at this point, but it, how could this happen? It's <laughs> a dumb question. Never mind. No, no, no and there has been dialogue like that, Leo. You know, people scratching their head that something this significant has escaped Microsoft's attention for a decade. Jesus. You know, more more than 10 years. And, you know, and remember when Balmer was jumping around making all the noise about XP and how it was going to be the most secure OS Microsoft ever produced. And they were they were just taking time off and they were going to go back through all their own code. You know, that's all nice sound bites for people who are not coders. But as we've said on this pro as program, as I have said, I've been amazed at how you can stare at code that that is wrong and not see it. It it takes that, that does, it, it shows you how hard this is to fix. Well, yes, it, it it tells you it tells you that the concept of re-examining written code is fun for security problems is fundamentally flawed. The concept is flawed. It doesn't work. You cannot look at code and and see what's broken. Even if you're looking for it, most of the time programmers are just you know, happy that it seems to work and they move on to the next thing. But, you know, in, in a forensics mode, you, you're going to look at it and go, okay, I, I'm trying to find a problem here. But what happens is you, you, you buy into what the code is expressing. You, 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 in, in understanding it, you get compromised. You're, 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 you get biased because you, you look at the code, you go, oh, now I see what it's trying to do. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it, but and it's it's so interesting then to have a debugger to be stepping through it and have it malfunction, and you'll go, "What? Mm. Wait a minute! I just looked at that." And mm -hmm. it's like, and then it's like, "Oh, you know, you slap your head." It's like, "Oh, now I see." Right. But it's it's weird. I mean, you have to have your face rubbed in it in order in order to 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 break that the assumptions that the code brings with it about. The fact that it's working correctly. Right. So the concept of Microsoft going back and rereading what they wrote before is like, okay, well, good luck with that. And here we here we've seen it. It just, you know, we keep seeing problems in some cases that are very old, that have been there for a long time, that presumably lots of people have looked at, you know, went over it again and say, yeah, it looks just fine to me. And then bang, now we have, you know, all versions of Windows vulnerable. You think this kind of, these kinds of vulnerabilities exist in other operating systems undiscovered? buried treasure for bad guys i really do i think that i think that we're seeing this because microsoft is still the big target we have all all listeners to this podcast have seen a a a relative shift of target towards adobe recently and look at the gold mine that has been for 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 the bad guys so you know reader and Acrobat and, and those various Adobe tools and Flash, you know, they've been around for a long time, too. No one was looking at them hard, but they presumably had all the same problems that, you know, that, that have been moved forward in time. Only when we when the bad guys really recognized Adobe as, first of all, a a large profile because it is highly installed. In fact, Adobe Reader's installation share in 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 Secunia's analysis that's one of the cool things about their tool is that that provides them with a a an a um 
an anonymized inventory of what stuff people have installed. So readers installed in 91% of, of those Windows systems where, where PSI, Secunius Tool, is in place. So the bad guys look at a 91% install base. It's not 100. That's Windows. But, right. you know, nine, not, but 91 okay. yeah. that's pretty good. You're going to get a lot of people. And that's exactly what we've been seeing with all these Adobe problems. So I, I really do believe that we, we, you know, we've talked about how difficult it is to write solid, secure code. It's, it's much more difficult to make it secure than it is to make it work. And most of the time, programmers stop with a, a piece of code when it works because they're under pressure, they're behind deadline, management wants it done, you know, they move on to something else when they got this thing working. Getting it working doesn't mean it's secure. It just means it works. But, you know, it's very different to have it, to have it able to defend itself. And so, obviously, links are able to be displayed. They've been, they, they, they've been displayed for 10 years. Turns out there's a way of of deliberately changing the icon code so that this, the common link displayer in all versions of Windows will run that code rather than display the image of the icon. And so, yeah, it works, but it can also be abused. And, and there's, there's enough difference between those two thresholds of it works and it works perfectly. That is, it, it, it cannot be abused. That I imagine any sufficiently complex software system that's, that's very involved, that's, that is inherently dealing with, with data coming into it, new stuff, it's probably got vulnerabilities. And what we're going to see by the end of this podcast is that the, the rate at which vulnerabilities are being discovered is skyrocketing. It is not getting better. It's getting worse. On that happy note... Speaking of Adobe. <laughs> speaking of Adobe, exactly. They uh, blogged, their, their security guy blogged this last week that they have been and are working with Microsoft now to use some of Microsoft's sandboxing technology for a future version of Reader. Adobe recognizes just what I said, that, that they've got a problem in that their software is too exploitable. And so it totally makes sense for something like Reader, which is a reader, <laughs> to be in, in, in a sandbox. When you run, when you load a PDF, that you know you want it to display on your screen. It doesn't need to reach out into your file system and and change the registry or or do any of a number of things that that a non sandboxed application can. Remember that you know any application running under Windows has has a tremendous amount of power. Normally, we have applications that are that are operating in our best interest and they're benign. But when you run someone's application, you're inherently trusting that they're not wanting to do anything bad to you. And for the most part, that's the case. It's not the case where you've got malicious content 
which is able to to abuse the 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 content interpreter the in this case a you know the acrobat a pdf reader and cause it to misbehave so even though adobe had the best of intentions their product is so complicated that you could you could give it something malformed and and cause it to misbehave and we we've, we've been talking about that a lot lately for example with that slash launch feature which allows pdfs to to cause um, executables to run in people's machines. Adobe didn't intend that. They even have a warning dialogue, which comes up to tell you that's about to happen. But it turns out they they had a mistake in that, so that the bad the the the, the malware was able to change what the warning dialogue said in a way that Adobe didn't intend. So yes, it worked, but it could also be abused. So the idea of of having reader sandbox itself is fantastic um it is the idea would be that in windows there's a very sophisticated system of permissions and so reader would deliberately reduce all the first thing it would do when it starts up before it even thinks about loading the the pdf file that it that you've asked it to view is it would it would itself strip itself of every possible access right to Windows that it it doesn't need, it, it's it would be nice if programs did that preemptively, but that's a lot of work and it requires a lot more testing and it, it might make the program a little more fragile. But the idea of programs sandboxing themselves by by voluntarily relinquishing rights that they don't need, I mean that's a fantastic concept. Nobody does it. But so that was that. That's the notion of self sandboxing, which Adobe has now said they're going to do. So that's a really good. That's a really good thing. I can't wait till they haven't said when. They haven't said what future version of Reader, but they're working on it with Microsoft. It's a great idea. Which is, Maybe more which programs is, should do that. Yes. Um, yeah. In fact, exactly three years ago, um, a uh, a researcher at Microsoft, a security guy, David LeBlanc, did a series of blog postings. Uh, titled Practical Windows Sandboxing, where he discussed exactly this. It wasn't the notion of a a third-party sandbox container, like we've talked about using virtual machines. We've talked about using, you know, sandboxy in order to sandbox things that don't expect to be sandboxed. But but what, what David was exploring was the idea of applications that would sandbox themselves. The problem, of course, is no programmers ever assume they've made a mistake. So they go, well, all those other people have problems they in their do it. <laughs> Exactly. They should sandbox themselves. But look, our code's just perfect. Uh-huh. That's Until what Java some- does, doesn't it? I mean, that was one of the security models of Java is all programs in Java are sandboxed. Yes, yes. And, 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 and we've also seen, for example, that... You know, newer systems, um, Android has this notion, the iPhone OS has this notion of of not giving programs global access to the system. In in the case of, uh, of the, for example, the iPhone OS, a program is given a, a branch to the file system and it can't explore anywhere but within its own branch. Now, users complain that that means there isn't a global file system. They can't, like, you know, store and load and save things 
between programs. But yes, that's both the, the, the that's an inconvenience, right. but a huge security win right. because you've inherently sandboxed a substantial aspect of of what a program can do. Does it limit you? Yes, in in you know in in, in this case, but you know the the upside is potentially much better security. So that's I think going to be, and we'll talk about this. I'm sure in the in the body of this show. But that's the kind of global thinking that we need. I mean, it's clear that these band-aids are never going to keep up. Yes. I think, I mean, I would imagine every listener of this podcast, having spent the last six months even just listening to this, is beginning to get a little dizzy. And it's like, okay. And I, I ranted about this a few months ago where I said, okay, you know, we need a different solution. We need a different approach. Clearly, and, and as you said in the body of this, we're going to be looking at the escalation of this problem. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And, it, I mean, it almost seems like there, there's, there's more attention coming from the, from the mal community of finding and exploiting these problems. So it, we need a different approach. Something has to change. Let me. Can we take a little breather and talk about a, a sponsor before we move on? Because there is still more. Oh yeah, <laughs> we're not even close to done. And I know you have a venti uh, latte waiting for you there, and <laughs> quinti venti latte. And uh, our friends at uh, uh, Go to Meeting want to have a word with y'all. Go to Meeting now. I like this Go to Meeting designed to be secure from the ground up with a 128 bit SSL. There's never been an exploit. You know, the remote access kernel that lies behind all of Citrix's products is built for security from the ground up, and you, you benefit from that in all of their products. GoToMeeting is designed to make it uh, more affordable for you to meet uh, with clients or colleagues without having to spend a lot of money on business travel, without having a conference call that goes on and on and on and just kills people's uh, interest in the subject. They just, I mean, they're, they're sitting there going, is, this, is it over? Is it over? GoToMeeting brings these conference calls to life. Everyone can see your screen. They are all on the same page, as it were. They follow along with you. They're more focused, more interested, more engaged. You'll get more done. You'll close more sales. Your training will be more effective. Uh, your product demos will be more effective. Collaboration. You can even uh, say to the person, and up to 15 people at the same time, to the people that you're meeting with, let's work on this document together. And you can all type in at the same time. It's really kind of amazing. It beats any kind of conference call. And now it's free for 30 days. So you get a chance to really put it through its paces. I want you to visit gotomeeting.com slash security now right now. And get a look at gotomeeting. Gotomeeting.com slash security now. It is the best. It is from Citrix. And uh, I think if you're not using it in business, you're missing a very, very valuable tool. All right. <laughs> What's next on the menu of security flaws? In addition, well, no, we have some good news. A bright spot on the horizon, courtesy of the TrueCrypt folks. Oh, this is good news. I did see this. Yeah. Yes. A couple days ago, uh, TrueCrypt version 7.0 was released. Um, one of the things that... I think is really interesting that Intel has done in their more recent uh, core i5 and i7 processors is due to the extreme popularity of AES, um, the, the Rheindahl cipher. We did a whole show on exactly how it 
functions, how it takes 128-bit blocks of, of data at a time and maps that into a completely different 128-bit result, thus giving us a very strong symmetric cipher. Um, the, it turns out that the algorithm is so clean that it lent itself to specialized instructions. And so the Intel Core 5 and Core uh, i5 and i7 processors have a set of, I think it's six instructions, which, which essentially perform a, like a macro of the fundamental AES round. There's another set of instructions which are used for key generation, um, but most of the time is spent after you set up the key it, it is spent doing the 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 actual the, the, the bit scrambling. There's like um, a, a block shift and a, and a block add and and some block mappings. The way it, it's the one of the things that's so nice about about the AES Rindal cipher is that it's it's clean to implement. Well, Intel leveraged that into instructions which dramatically accelerate over what what software can do by somewhere between four and eight times. So I mention this because with TrueCrypt version 7.0, they now support hardware-accelerated AES cipher if, you have, if you're running it on one of these supported Core i5 and i7 processors. On their site, they list the, the, the sub-model numbers of those i5s and i7s uh, which support it. So, uh, and they're called the they're called the AES hyphen NI instructions, which stands for new instructions. Um, and uh, because the round the the uh, the cryptographic rounds take up most of the time, as opposed to key generation, TrueCrypt does not bother using the AES new instructions, which are used for key set up only for doing the rounds, but they report a four to eight times improvement in performance. So, I mean, even though it's fast as it is, when I, you know, in my, in my own, people may remember my own sort of crude measurements of using a system with and without TrueCrypt, I couldn't really see any difference. The, the, the uh, encryption overhead was lost underneath the overhead of the hard disk performance. So it wasn't slowing things down at all for me. The other cool thing they have done is they've created the notion of favorites. You're able to sort of teach it about, for example, USB drives, thumb drives, or or larger physical spinning hard drives, where for your in your own environment, you want the drive's contents to be secured, that is encrypted. But you don't want to have to deal with the need to enter in a long nightmare secure password. And we all know what those are about from our discussion of LastPass two weeks ago, what it means to have a secure password. And so they allow you to, to add specific drives of your choosing to the so-called uh, uh, TrueCrypt favorites and auto-mount those volumes, which is sort of cool. So it means, for example, you could have a TrueCrypted USB thumb drive on your keychain. And, you know, I do. And, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners do because you, you absolutely 
don't want to let that thumb drive out of your control if you've got important stuff on it. The idea being, though, that you might, for example, have a machine at home and a machine at work, and you use a thumb drive for transporting files back and forth. Well, you can you can use TrueCrypt installed on the machines at each end, teach them about this thumb drive, and then it is automatically mounted and decrypted with, with, with as you'd expect, lots of cautions and, and TrueCrypt you know, has, has carefully designed this so that it is... It's still secure within the bounds of auto mounting. I mean, even that people could say, oh, I don't want my precious crown jewels auto mounted. It's like, fine, we're not making you do it. But in some cases where you, for example, you really do have physical control of a computer, you could train it to auto mount drives of your choosing just to make it easier to use. And so I think that's nice. Um, they've also added... Um, Large sector support. Um, hard drives, as we know, are beginning to incorporate larger physical sectors because it's more efficient for them in terms of storage as densities get up. Western Digital famously has a 4K physical sector hard drive as opposed to the normal half a K. The 512 byte has been the sector size for all time. Well, TrueCrypt could support mountable volumes on larger sector size drives before now, that is before version 7, but they could not support where you encrypt the, the whole drive, where the OS and everything, the whole drive encryption still needed five, uh, 512-byte sectors. That's changed, so the whole drive encryption can now run on sector sizes of 512, 1K, 2K, and 4K. So that's um, one addition. And they had had to... Until now, until version 7, in order to get hibernation file encryption to work, they had to do some messy things, essentially hooking into Windows and and modifying some internals in, a, in an aggressive fashion. Um, with version 7, they're now using the official, provided by Microsoft, hibernation file encryption API which exists in Vista, Windows 7, and in, in Server 2008. The, 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 the API is not in XP, so people using XP will, you know, it'll still work. It'll just use it the way it was. So they're sort of cleaning things up where they're able to. Um, and so TrueCrypt version 7 is available now and looks like uh, some, you know, a nice move forward for those guys. They've done a lot of good stuff. They really are uh, keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, they are. And I ran across a, a, a sort of an interesting page. I feel like I'd seen it somewhere before, but uh, uh, someone in uh, Twitter, Chris Golinghorst, whose uh, Twitter handle is OI Horse, O I H O R S E, he um, sent me a mention about a site called WPACracker.com. And uh, you should take a look at it, Leo. It's just www.wpacracker.com. I usually stay away from sites with the word cracker in it. Yeah, this is safe. Uh, <laughs> and it's fun. I saw that the, uh, the email address for inquiring, it was moxie at uh, something or other, thoughtcrimes.com. I, uh, I thought, oh, that's our old friend Moxie Marlin Spike, no doubt. Oh, boy. So what um, does this do? What it does is, for a fee... For 
uh, a fee ranging between $17 and up. I think I see in my notes here $40, but I think it's possible to end up spending more. Um, what they've what they've done is to they've put together a large WPA cracking facility. Basically, it's a cluster, a cluster exactly, a large cluster, which will do in in uh, forty minutes what a strong state of the art personal workstation could do in five days. Oh, so it's a. And so the idea is for as little as $17 using half the cluster, which takes 40 minutes or the, or $35, twice that essentially for the full cluster, which takes 20 minutes. And with your choice of English or German dictionaries, 136 million word dictionaries. Yes. Wow. Big, big dictionary. Now that's the standard. The extended has an additional, not overlapping, an additional 248 million words. Jeez. They will they will pound on a on a packet capture from a Wi-Fi sniffer. So so and you're able to literally submit like a Wireshark packet capture file which which contains packets and they will then work on cracking the encryption um, wow. f- through, by, by passing those packets through their 136 and optionally an additional 284 million word dictionaries um, uh, and try to tell you what the password is. Now, you pay whether it succeeds or not. So and they 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 run through Amazon payments. Um, then they oh and the extended dictionary crack is forty dollars uh, as opposed to probably seventeen for the half cluster. Um, and so um, so so you pay in advance, hope for the best, and they'll let you know in like you know forty or or twenty minutes, depending on how much you pay, whether they were able to figure out what the password was. So this tells us a few things. Um, this means that uh, just as we were saying two weeks ago, you definitely want to be using non-dictionary-based passwords for this kind of reason. Now, in their in their fact, one of the questions is, well, wait a minute. The Church of Wi-Fi has rainbow tables for a thousand of the most common ESSIDs, but apparently only has one million word dictionaries for each. So what that means is, remember that, and we've also covered this in the past, the nice thing about the WPA encryption is that it it merges the, the SSID of your Wi-Fi network into the password you provide to create the key, specifically to prevent rainbow table attacks. A rainbow table is essentially, it's a, it's a table of the results of using different passwords. So, so, for example, you could take, and this is what the Church of Wi-Fi has done, you, you could take... And a million word dictionary 
and and run them through the algorithm to create the key for all of those words then you then you use those keys to quickly see whether you can decrypt the Wi-Fi traffic. So in order for that to be the case, because WPA incorporates the ESSID, what they've had to do was limit to some number of ESSIDs. Now, for example, we know that access points have default ESSIDs. For example, you know, you plug one in from Linksys and it says Linksys or, you know, D-Link or Netgear or whatever. That is, those are, and you, and you can imagine, those are the first ones anyone is going to try. So, so if you had never changed your ESSID and you were using words in a dictionary, then you're much more vulnerable to the Church of Wi-Fi's rainbow table attack than if you had changed your ESSID. So this this further says that not only do you want to use a good password, and we, we know what that means, you, it's really, really valuable not to leave your Wi-Fi node named whatever it came out of the box. Whatever it came out of the factory is going to be in in organizations like the Church of Wi-Fi's rainbow table system, you're still protected if you've got a really good random password, but renaming your access point to something, you know, off the map is is definitely a good thing too. And uh, I thought it was just interesting that, you know, this is how people are spending their time. It's like, okay, well, good luck. No listeners of ours are going to be using, you know, words from the dictionary, I hope. So that's that would be a good, um, uh, again, just a reminder not to do that. Uh, Winamp, for anyone using Winamp for um, playing their media, I just wanted to give people a heads up that there is a a flash exploit for the, for the it's not actually a, it's not a, an exploit in flash, it's Winamp's parsing of the flash VP6 style FLV content. So if you, if you play an FLV, a flash video file through Winamp, version prior to 5.58 and if it were malicious that could take over your computer so anyone using winamp make sure that you are updated to version 5.58 and uh you'll be safe from that we're actually big fans of winamp here because they uh, feature the network and uh, they sponsor the bandwidth for your show as a matter of come to think of it <laughs> so oh, thank um, you yes <laughs> thank you winamp it's through. I guess AOL owns it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Mozilla got caught um, by this surprise. Is, this is a bad one. Yes. Um, and uh, this, this is also a cautionary tale worth worth us spending a moment thinking about. Um, something called Mozilla Sniffer was uploaded to addons.mozilla.org um, and added to the list of optional add-ons for Firefox on June 6th of this year, so last month. During that time, it was downloaded about 1,800 times per Mozilla's counter. On July 17th, so after more than a month, it was discovered 
to be sending to a remote server all the form data from any page that anyone who had installed that logged into. So it was malicious spyware of the first order. So the good news is it had only been downloaded 1,800 times. It was flagged experimental. So anyone who was using it would have had to have seen all those cautions that Mozilla puts up saying, we're not vouching for this. We haven't looked at this. We haven't checked it out. Use at your own risk. Unfortunately, there was major risk. And for, and for, so certainly what Mozilla wanted everyone to know is if you did ever use this thing called Mozilla Sniffer, and I wasn't able to determine because it's gone now, I wasn't able to determine what it was, what benefit it was supposed to be providing. Presumably, it was it was billing, it, it was billing itself as something that someone would want for some reason. They kind of they kind of gave it away with the name Sniffer. Yeah, <laughs> sniffing your passwords. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> and so so it was sending back. All the form data. So, like, any time you logged in, it got your username and, and login credentials and, of course, the, the, the URL of the page that you were logged into. So, not good. Um, it has been blacklisted. So, even if it hasn't been removed from people's machines, uh, Firefox will stop using it, will alert its user that, that they've got a blacklisted add-on installed and uh, that they should remove it. So, that's good. Yeah. The last thing in is this last thing? Oh no, it's not. <laughs> still this, you were right when more. you said this is a big day for security news. Holy yeah, um, I want to discuss this in detail in two weeks um, because it's an interesting type of attack that we haven't discussed in the past. It's been around and has been known for a while, and it's sneaky, um, and it makes it will make for a great. It will make for a great detailed coverage in two weeks. It's called a DNS rebinding attack. And it's in the news now because someone named Craig Hefner is going to be presenting at the Black Hat conference at the end of this month. His his presentation titled, How to Hack Millions of Routers. The good news is it's in the news today and all the routers which are vulnerable hopefully are scurrying right now to get themselves fixed before his presentation. Because he's not only going to present how this works, but offer proof of concept code because he's annoyed that this problem has been around for so long and has not been fixed. Popular router models... From Netgear, Linksys, Belkin, Dell, and both the Fios and DSL routers provided by Verizon are vulnerable, including routers running the third-party firmware DDWRT and OpenWRT. Um, In testing, 30 different routers, half of them were vulnerable. So not all routers are, but half were. So I would say, at the very least, once this becomes public, uh, there will be some proof-of-concept sites that are benign. You'll definitely want to be making sure that you're not a victim to this. Apparently, 
NoScript has some DNS rebinding attack prevention technology in it, which I will track down in order to, as part of in two weeks from now, uh, the complete presentation on what is DNS rebinding. But so in brief, what happens is you, you go to a malicious site, obviously not knowing that it's malicious. Now, the good news is if you're a NoScript user or you've got scripting controls of some kind, then you will not be running the script probably that this malicious site offers. The problem, of course, is that we now have, we're constantly seeing instances where bad guys are installing bad script on good sites. So, for example, if, you, if, if they're using some SQL injection vulnerability to get some malicious script installed on someone's Facebook page and you go to their Facebook page, well, then you're going to run that script. So it's not enough to say, you know, don't go to bad sites or to assume that no script will protect you because we're, we're seeing instances all the time. In fact, there was one we talked about a month ago where an advertising banner was, you know, benignly being presented, but it contained malicious JavaScript in the advertising banner. So, so you go to a site that gets script to run as JavaScript. Um, you're in going to that site, your browser had to get the IP address of that domain, obviously from that site's DNS server. If the site that you go to has control of its DNS server, you know, many, you know, any good high-end site does. For example, GRC, I, you know, I run my own DNS server. So I'm able to, to, I'm providing DNS for GRC, which is then being echoed by level three. So, so you go to a site that has control of its DNS server. What happens then is the script which is running from that site is due to the sandbox that that exists for JavaScript called, and we've talked about this also before, the same origin policy. Same origin policy prevents that script from, from being able to run against any other sites. So it keeps it local. What happens, though, is this script makes another query out to the same domain, and it's been set up with the DNS server for that domain to the second time return the IP of your router. Mm. So what happens is, and, and it's, it's not uncommon for, for a DNS query to return multiple IPs. It's done, for example, for load balancing. If you look up the... the um, if you use like NS Lookup, a command line utility in Windows, or actually in in all kinds of, I mean, Mac has it, and Linux and Unix, you use NS Lookup to look up an IP for like for Google or for Microsoft or for AOL, you'll get a you'll get like a set of four or five, and if you use it again, you'll get a rotated set of those. So the idea is they're giving you multiple IPs that can be used for accessing them for load balancing, and it's rotating that list. So this notion of getting a different IP back is not that uncommon. What happens, though, is by, by having the script make a second query to the same domain, it now believes that your router 
is is part of the same domain that the script is running in, which gives it access despite the same origin policy to your router. If you've got default login for your router, and apparently half of the routers that were tested did, that is the Linksys, Netgear, Belkin, and so on, then not only does it have access, does it have access permission to your router's IP, but it can log in and, of course, perform all kinds of mischief, open ports, uh, redirect your DNS to malicious DNS server so that you have spoofing problems and so forth. So this is, again, caused a huge buzz in the security community. Uh, we'll be finding more about it in detail in, uh, in a couple of weeks at the end of the month. And I'm going to be talking about it, the history of it, mitigation that has been done, how things are um, uh, have been created, what NoScript is doing uh, to, to, to try to deal with this, and what you know users can do. But in the meantime, if by any chance you are still running a default username and password on your router in the belief that it's on your side of the network, so why bother changing it? Here's an example of why it, you, we can't even leave default username and passwords for uh, equipment in our own LAN the way they came from the factory any longer. Um, it's just not safe. There's just <laughs> too many ways around these things. It's amazing. In the news also, um, I got this from the SANS um, security newsletter. I just wanted to, a little heads up on webcams. If anyone has still not, has been intending to, but hasn't yet covered their webcam over with a piece of opaque tape. A German man was arrested, uh, an unnamed German man arrested um, in Germany for spying with the, on, on 150 girls through their webcams. Um, apparently, they began to complain, some of the girls complaining about random erratic operation of their computers that caused the computers to be looked at by someone who knew what they were doing, who discovered a webcam spying Trojan Jeez. had been installed. The common vector appears to be ICQ chat client, which was used in order to install these since it was found in every instance. The communications was then backtracked. It installed a Trojan, uh, which was able to turn on the webcam. And the communications was backtracked to this person, so they were able to then, you know, acquire his equipment and determine that the number was 150 that he had been uh, spying on. So um, unless you need your webcam, just cover it over with a piece of opaque tape and just peel it off when you want to use it. Um, hopefully, we're going to have shutters installed by the manufacturers before long. That would be a good thing. And my final bit of good news is that the version 2 of Microsoft's Security Essentials is now in beta uh, as of a couple days ago. It adds, uh, as from Microsoft's blog, which describes it, a better, smarter protection and cleanup engine. So it's just more better. Uh, for some reason, it says it can turn the Windows firewall on. It's like, well, okay, that's good. Um, apparently, they, they just gave it the ability to do that, and it didn't have it before. Sounds like a good thing. 
Um, it also integrates, they say, more deeply with Internet Explorer to provide better protection against web-based threats. And it's now getting itself involved in network filtering. Um, people were complaining, uh, you know, AV vendors um, who were, uh, well, who had a problem. You, you may, may remember that with Vista, they added, a te- Vista added technology that prevented kernel hooks from functioning and and which was a problem for the AV vendors because they wanted they needed to be able to hook the kernel in order to for example monitor traffic flowing and the firewall vendors were in the same uh, boat so Microsoft added something that they call the Windows filtering platform API to provide a sanctioned means for allowing that kind of functionality without needing to hook the kernel so Microsoft Security Essentials moving ever forward into the territory of firewalls and AV vendors, as I think everyone expects them to over time. Um, they've now added that functionality in version two. So it'll be doing a um, much better job of protecting against network-based attacks. Microsoft is, you know, I mean, this is what Microsoft does. They did this with the Windows firewall when they first came up with it. You know, there was a, a large um, active uh, industry of firewall vendors and Microsoft came along and said, oh, well, we're just going to add a little firewall here. It won't it won't bother you. Don't worry about it. And we're turning and we're leaving it off by default. So it's like, OK, fine. Well, that that was the way it was for a few versions. And then Service Pack 2 of XP turned it on by default. And uh, now it's, of course, become a, a an intrinsic part of Windows. And I think we're going to see the same thing with um, Security Essentials becoming an ever more aggressive and useful um, AV replacement for the third-party add-on products. People still, you know, run third-party software firewalls. People will still run third-party AV uh, tools. Microsoft is just trying to say, okay, you know, we're going to offer one too for those who want it. It's certainly better than not having it at all. And I, of course, I agree. If anyone's interested, you can get that through the Connect uh, service. Microsoft Connect is connect.microsoft.com. Um, I have it. I haven't yet begun to experiment with it. And once it's uh, becoming more official, I'll have uh, better and more detailed coverage. In right. a little bit of errata, I just wanted to note uh, the news in, I think it was e-commerce magazine or site or something. Uh, Amazon announced that sales of e-books have outstripped the sales of hardcover books. They announced a what was called, uh, and I'm quoting from this uh, story, Amazon has announced a dramatic upswing in e-book sales for the first half of, of 2010, it sold three times as many Kindle books as it did in the same first half of 2009. For the second, for, for the full second quarter, it reported sales of 143 Kindle books sold for every 100 hardcover books sold. So, of course, it's not saying they're not comparing it to softcover books. Obviously, they're still selling tons more of that, but it's now selling more than um, hardcover books so uh, isn't that amazing i would have never are, thought that i mean uh ebooks are happening yeah i thought it might be the younger generation but our generation would never adopt these uh, 
paper-free books, but you know, you and I both read e-books like crazy. So yeah, we do. And in fact, I I, I forgot to mention in in the past month. So so that was in the in the second quarter, in the full second quarter of this year, uh, 143 Kindle books for every 100 hardcover books. Over the past month alone, 180 Kindle books for every 100 hardcover books. Oh, wow. Books. Oh, that's so interesting. So it's, so it's ramping up fast. Yes, it's accelerating very quickly. I think, you know, if you point at one thing, it's the drop of the price on the Kindle. Uh, well, actually, two things. And then the fact that you can read Kindle on almost anything now. Yes. And I have to say, Leo, I, um, I, I briefly had an order in for a third, for a third iPad because <laughs> You're um, crazy. I decided to try using the iPad on my, with my stair climber. Uh-huh. And it was, it was wonderful. I mean, it was, a, you know, a, in, in um, landscape orientation. Mm-hmm. Much bigger, much brighter than I would have been using my Kindle DX, and I was disappointed, as as I think I mentioned to you, with the, the DX2 with its supposedly fifty percent greater contrast. It does seem now to be better than the first DX. I think maybe it had to get warmed up or something, and I don't think the technology changed. Huh. I think the refresh algorithm changed. Ah. I see a little more twitchiness as it's changing the page. There's like some extra flutter going on. And I think that they're just managing somehow to pull. Remember that, that it's an electrophoretic process that pulls black particles back away from the front of the screen. I think they're just somehow shaking them up a little bit more and, and pushing them further back. Because it's not that the, the, dark, the dark is darker, it's that the white is whiter. And I think it's just, I mean, which sort of says they could upgrade the original Kindle DX you know, with yeah, a software. It's just fix. software, yeah. Yeah, and, and in fact, even the non-DX Kindle, the regular Kindle. But anyway, so what I did was it finally occurred to me, it's like, okay, if the iPad is better, oh, I know what I did. I purchased the external VGA connector for the iPad, and it didn't work because I think it only works to export specific video like presentation video when, when you're using Apple's presentation deal, it's not sort of a generic video exporter um, from, from my own experimentation. So I thought, okay, well, that didn't work. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just try a Windows machine, which I can, and that's where I use my little libretto now and a big VGA screen up, propped up on a tripod. And I'm in heaven. I have a little, a little uh, uh, RF clicker that I hold in my hand that I'm able to just snap, snap through the pages of uh kindle for windows and uh so yes i'm i've been a nice upgrade for me i have a uh a a spin right story a short little spin right <laughs> okay. story from darren uh and uh, uh i had a oh he, i call it the magic touch uh quoting from him he said dear steve here's one spin right testimonial not overly dramatic but it's mine some time ago my wife called me at work one day to say there was an error message on the computer when she turned it on, and it wouldn't boot. Having only enough computer knowledge to be dangerous, I told her it would have to wait until I got home and check it out. So he wasn't going to try to have her do anything over the phone. Upon arriving home, I soon realized that my magic touch would do nothing to revive the computer. Not worrying for a moment, I slipped in my copy of Spinrite and proceeded to run a scan on the hard drive. About four hours later, Spinrite was through doing its magic. The computer booted up perfectly, and I haven't had one problem with it since. 
However, I do now run SpinRun occasionally for maintenance. Thank you for this wonderful program. And Darren, thanks for the report. Yay. Love that. All right. Okay. Uh, we're done on commercials, so if you want to run right into uh, our topic of the day, I'd love it. We've yep. got, about, uh, got about half an hour. Can you do it in half an hour? Oh, I can because okay. I, I've, I've touched five on several, years of, in half an hour. <laughs> several of these things. Well, it's five years of summary and some interesting conclusions. So this is from Secunia, the, the Danish company, the security company that provides PSI. And as a consequence of PSI, but also using the CVE. CVE is the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures List, which is uh, MITRE.org hosts it. And it's an industry-wide sort of general database of vulnerabilities. Everything that uh, we talk about on this show and a, a bazillion more that we don't ever have time to talk about because they're just random, obscure uh, programs that, that don't have much exposure to the world, they all assigned a CVE number. So that so that database is a huge repository of of this, these kinds of uh, um, vulnerabilities and exposures. Um, the Secunia PSI tool and Secunia, as a consequence, monitors um, twenty nine thousand products and. What they have seen is over that entire 29,000 product base, there really isn't a clear trend towards more or fewer problems, which is sort of interesting. When you stand back, the view from 5,000 feet is, okay, pretty much the same. But it turns out if you look at the top 50 installed programs it's a whole different story oh, interesting it's really interesting which if shows you, if, you that people are attacking stuff that's popular precisely yeah i mean that, that's exactly what it says it's it's that uh, well i mean look at adobe as we were just talking about adobe has a has a, a huge install base um in terms of the top third-party programs ranked by by vulnerabilities during the year 2009 so the full pre previous year um um by vulnerabilities interestingly enough and this doesn't mean okay this is just number of vulnerabilities we're not talking about classifications and so forth but firefox was uh ranked number 1 in vulnerabilities and it has a i thought this was interesting among this database, 56% installation share. So well more than half now of Windows users who are also using Secunia's PSI tool. So again, these are smart security-aware users who are even clued into Secunia and, and PSI. But 56% of them have installed Firefox. Number two, that, that, that was 96 CVEs, that is from the CVE database. Second down with 84 is Safari that has a 15% installation share. Down from that with 70 is Sun, Sun's Java runtime engine that interestingly has an 89% installation. This really follows something you said a, a while ago, Leo, that you were more aware than I was 
that Java's runtime engine is really well established. I think it comes in, with most operating systems, if I'm not mistaken. In in Windows systems, so yeah. doesn't yet come with Windows, but uh, but oh, it, it doesn't. Certainly okay. Is, okay, it's certainly required by um, you know many popular Windows apps that just sort of install it as part of themselves being installed if you don't already have it installed. Right. Um, equal to uh, the Java runtime engine with also 70 vulnerabilities during the year was Chrome, Google's Chrome browser with 30% installation base within this population. Then one fewer vulnerability, 69, was Adobe Reader with 91%. Then the same number of CVEs, probably because it's the same code base, is Adobe Acrobat that had 8% installation base. Then at 59 vulnerabilities, but 99% installation share, more than anything else, was Adobe Flash Player. Wow. So, and then the same number, 51 vulnerabilities, was Adobe Air. And that ha- Air has 41% installation yeah. base. I was surprised by that. That's, it's also well installed. And then dropping a little bit with, from 51 to 48 CVEs is iTunes that is, has a 43% installation share. And then at the bottom of the list of the top 10 is Mozilla Thunderbird that has a 10% installation share and 36 CVEs. So, so aggregating all of this data and, and looking at, at, at what we've seen, of the 50 most prevalent programs, 26 are from Microsoft, 24 are non-Microsoft tools from 14 different vendors. The... The highest level of installation, of course, was Internet Explorer because it's pervasive. It's in every version of Windows. And this is all of this is just for Windows platform. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm going to keep my eye out for and find some, some numbers for comparison w- with Mac and also with Linux and Unix and also open and closed source because I think that those would be some numbers worth looking at just sort of for curiosity's sake. So the high installation point was 100% Windows Internet Explorer. The low uh, in terms of, uh, of this 24 non-Microsoft programs was Cyberlink's Power DVD. And even though it was low, it had an installation level of 24%. So nearly one out of every four machines has Power DVD in it. So what this says is that those 24 non-Microsoft applications coming from 14 different vendors have a market penetration of no less than 24%. So it ranges from 24% up to nearly 100%. Um, During the two years from 2007 to 2009, during which time um, Secunia was looking at all this, the number of vulnerabilities in these top 50 programs, so the ones that are um, most installed in people's machines, those vulnerabilities um, typically doubled from 220 to 420. So, so 
during those two years, we saw a doubling of vulnerabilities. And so that's through 2009. So far, during the first six months of 2010, we're already at 380 vulnerabilities. So we're at 89% year to date, as of now, of all of 2009. So if we extrapolate, if we assume the rest of the year is going to go like it has so far, um, we would be at 760 vulnerabilities this year, up from 420 last. So it is, I mean, it is not only, I mean, it's not just a line pointing upwards, it's a hockey stick. I mean, it, it's, it's the rate at which vulnerabilities are being found is increasing. Um, of the types, they uh, Secunia ranks them in five different categories from super critical then to, then to highly critical, moderately critical. They only had 1% in the super critical category, but they did have um, 50% of the vulnerabilities ranging between high and moderately critical. And interestingly, 80% of these are remote attacks. Only 20% were, were local, non-remotely non exploitable attacks. And of course, we know, we've been talking about the great danger of having the bad guys able to, to reach into our systems from, from far out. And, and finally, of course, the, the, the conclusion is that if you, if you look at uh, the chart of Windows vulnerabilities versus third-party vulnerabilities, it turns out that, that Windows, first of all, Vista and, and uh, Windows 7 is not included here at all because that was released in October, and so there just isn't any, any usable data. But, but XP and Vista had no essential difference in the rate or the severity of vulnerabilities. They were really? essentially the same. Huh. Essentially the same. And I expect that we're, we're going to see the same thing with, with Windows 7 because, as we know, it's sort of just a repainted Vista. Um, and so Microsoft has been managing essentially at a constant rate their, the, the level of, of vulnerabilities, whereas unfortunately, and our own experience bears this out, look at what has happened with Adobe in the last year. Um, and to a lesser degree, the third-party applications are beginning to be where people are turning because they represent lower-hanging fruit. You know, Microsoft has spent a huge amount of time securing themselves, automating um, uh, update and patch management. All of Microsoft's programs are covered within the the um, the Microsoft update umbrella to keep them current. And uh, we do see that third-party providers are are late to the party. I mean, here's Adobe. You know, finally, first saying we're going to do quarterly updates. Then that doesn't work out very well. Like not even for a quarter. And now saying, okay, we're going to be doing them, you know, monthly because we obviously have a problem. And now finally saying we're going to sandbox Reader, which is, you know, the biggest uh, source of ongoing problems that we have. So uh, that's the lay of the land. So, um, yeah, I guess we did kind of uh, touch on this in the beginning part about what we can, you know, what the future looks like and what we can do and, and whether it's hopeless and, and all of that. I, very interesting. Yeah, I th I think that I mean it's 
it's not surprising to me that we're seeing this growth in third-party exploitation because, as I was saying earlier, getting this stuff right is so difficult. No doubt Microsoft is spending a huge amount of money now to do only as well as they are, which is they're, they're spending all this time and resource, and we, we, we really know they are, and they're only managing to hold even. They're, I mean, they still right. have problems, like we right. spent the first half hour talking about. But it's with not getting worse. link problem. It's, right. They, they're not getting worse, but they're investing all of this and just holding even. What's happening is third-party vendors are not investing to the same level, right? And it is getting worse. Yeah, and I think it's almost like the bad guys have discovered they're an easier vector of attack. I think we talked right. about this some years ago that as Microsoft becomes more, yep, we uh, predicted this. Leo. We, we predicted, predicted this. It. Yeah, Leo. the third parties would become the next vector. Yep. Plus, the uh, lack of regular patching from third parties kind of opens them up as well. People don't check. You know, they're always checking Windows Update. It's automatic now. Yes. Very interesting. Yeah, so I think I think what we'll see is, you know, this stuff takes time. I think third parties are going to have to get a clue about, about managing updates. Um, I, I myself just added, for the first time ever, uh, no one has seen it, or well, people have seen it, but it hasn't been officially released. My uh, the, the the DNS benchmark has an integrated version checking facility in it, which I wanted to get all up in place and dusted off and proven because certainly CryptoLink will as well. Uh, you know, I absolutely want to be able to say to people. In fact, I even have a, a facility in CryptoLink where if I ever discover anything really bad and people want to enable it their version of CryptoLink will stop functioning huh. until they get it fixed. Oh, that's so it will, interesting. It will preemptively protect them. They'll have a from, beacon of some kind. Yes, it, it actually have that technology now. I think that's an interesting uh, approach. Because um, that's what you want. You want some way of forcing people to either update or pay attention or just at least warn them. Well, there, there, there will be several ways, several ways of having it operate. But yes, I mean, if, for example... If if reader if if a real problem was discovered in reader, wouldn't you want it to to preemptively sit, pop up something and say, "Wait a minute, I'm vulnerable right yes. now. Uh, Please, stop using me." Yes, you are. You sure you want to open this document? Right. I'm not going to force you not to, but I now know that there's a problem with me, and I'd seriously think you ought to fix me first. So you, you you'd install a kill. It's, it's I guess it's a kill switch. Well, it would it would be optional. I would I in this case I'd probably have it default on and then and always be overwritable. But the idea would be that in the case of something really bad, again, I don't think I'm going to make a really bad mistake, but who does? You know? Right. And so in the event of something really bad being discovered, I would be able to to if people wished to prevent them from exposing themselves to something that I don't know is wrong ahead of time. Right. And it seemed like a good idea. Seems like a very good idea. And most people have too much ego to do something like that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem. They don't want to say, yeah, I got I got, uh, I might have a problem here. Steve Gibson is the man in charge at grc.com. His uh, SpinWrite software is available there. Great program. Must have program. If you've got a hard drive you need, SpinWrite. Go to grc.com. Also, for 16-kilobit versions of the show, 
there are uh, show notes there, transcripts of every show, going all the way back to episode one, grc.com. And Steve, we'll uh, see you next week. We'll do a Q&A next week, and then the week after, in-depth look at DNS rebinding attacks. Yeah, if you want to get a question to Steve, uh, how to prevent them, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, (laughs) I'm just going to say, if you want a question to Steve, it's grc.com slash feedback. grc.com slash feedback. Okay, Steve, thanks a lot. My pleasure, Leo. See you next week. See you next week on Security Now. Security Now.